May of 1970 was a big month in my life, and not because it marked my 24th birthday, which I, I don't remember celebrating. I won't. Never mind. Uh, make the obvious. I won't make the obvious joke. Um, on May 3rd, 1970, my best male friend, one of my two best friends, J. Brian McDonald put a blanket down in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House, sat on it, and announced that he would fast until the United States reversed its incursion into Cambodia or until he died. Brian was the husband of my other best friend, Alice Johnson McDonald, whom I discussed in a sermon over the summer, a woman who sort of adopted me as a little brother. Three years older than me, Brian had been a Jesuit seminarian until he was censured by this Catholic church for writing a letter declaring that there is no sin. That censure meant he could attend Mass, but was barred from taking communion. When Brian died in 2003 at the age of 60, the Los Angeles Times described him as, quote, a spiritual busybody someone who could not help but intervene in a world that saddens him with its injustices. I spent a lot of time that spring with Brian in Lafayette Square and at the home in Georgetown that the Quakers donated for his, for his use. One Sunday morning, a couple of weeks into his fast, uh, a local Episcopal priest named Father Went brought his congregation out to Lafayette Square to take communion with Brian. As they approached, the priest turned to his parishioners and said, remove your shoes because you are walking on holy ground. That brought tears to my eyes and sobs to my throat. My friend, in danger of losing his life or ruining his health, who was barred by his own church from even taking communion, was being declared so full of grace by his actions that the ground around him was consecrated. Brian took a tiny morsel of the French bread and a small sip of the cold duck that served as that church's communion. The only other thing Brian consumed besides water during his fast were a little bit of diluted fruit juice for strength when I drove him to Scranton, Pennsylvania for his mother's funeral. And the pot we smoked before going to see the movie Woodstock. Brian ended the fast after 37 days. Satisfied with the progress he had made in discussions with the White House staff. If you're interested in such things, the first food he ate was peanut butter ice cream. And then he was sorry he did. Over the 37 days of the past, of the fast, he had developed an, unlikely to the rest of us, friendship with Henry Kissinger that would last the rest of his life. Kissinger wrote about Brian in his memoirs and mentioned him in his eulogy for Richard Nixon in 1994. Kissinger's eulogy was only 11 paragraphs long, but one of those paragraphs was about Brian. 
Kissinger said, I wish that in his, Nixon's, final hours, I could have told him about Brian McDonald, who, during the Cambodian crisis, had been fasting on a bench in Lafayette Park across from the White House. Until, as he said, President Nixon redeemed his pledge to withdraw American forces from that anguished country in two months, a promise which was, in fact, kept. Across the chasm of decades, Brian called me the day Richard Nixon fell ill and left a message. When you talk to President Nixon, tell him that I am praying for him. Less than two years later, Brian would be praying for the street corner thugs who had stabbed his wife, Alice, to death in Trenton. I can tell you that Brian didn't consider himself remarkable. Most of the time, he held down a day job working with parolees and drug addicts in Philadelphia. If you met him on the street, you'd find him a soft-spoken, friendly man, chain-smoking cigarettes, and displaying maybe a hint of having been wounded by life. Only after you got to know him, or maybe if you met him during one of his occasional spiritual crusades, would you realize that this was one of those rare people trying earnestly to live his faith. My sermon today is about the blind and the elephant, a story all of you probably know. It's sometimes attributed to the Buddha, and he did use the analogy, but it predates him, even him, to Vedic teachings. The idea being that we mortals don't see all the realms of existence. So what we perceive as holy may be just a misleading fragment. We can and will take that idea to some metaphysical places, but let's start with one undoubtedly mortal individual, my friend J. Brian McDonald. To the Roman Catholic Church, Brian was so unholy that he was unfit to take communion, even at his mother's funeral. The church saw in him a heretic. To Episcopal Father Went, Brian was so holy that his presence consecrated the ground around him. Father Went saw the sacrifice Brian was making for a more just and peaceful world. I don't know if Henry Kissinger would would consider Brian holy, But what he saw was a man who treated all with respect and kindness, even a deposed and despised president. That's what I loved about Brian. He could and did befriend Henry Kissinger, as well as famous peace activists and celebrities. He had a soul-deep commitment to the worth and dignity of everyone, including his wife's murderers. If you're wondering, by the way, whether Henry Kissinger was just strolling through Lafayette Square one day on his way to the White House and stopped to chat with this guy fasting on a blanket, it didn't happen that way. Um, As Brian's fast went on, it it attracted a sort of mini movement of people who came to the park every day and or to the home uh, in the evenings uh, to support him. And some famous and well-connected people got involved. Uh, And it seems that Shirley MacLaine knows everyone in the universe. 
and can arrange anything in the universe. And so Shirley um, brought over the managing editor of the Washington Post, uh, the other journalists, and uh, she arranged for Brian to go across the street to the White House and have a meeting with Len Garment, presidential advisor, and with, and with Henry Kissinger. Brian, of course, had flaws. He used drugs recreationally, even as he worked to help addicts recover, and his smoking contributed to his early death. I didn't intend to spend so much time on Brian in this sermon, but events in the news late, lately led me to share with you one more facet of his life. The last time we visited each other, when we were both 50-ish, he told me about his childhood. I knew that his father was a rich and influential businessman in Scranton. But Brian had never said more than that or explained why they were estranged. Now he told me that when Brian was just a small child, six, seven, eight, his father did a lot of entertaining had his business and church pals over for dinner. Then Brian said, I was dessert. I added that to the sermon because sexual assaults have been so much in the news. Here's one more series of assaults, this one on a small boy. This history also provides us with another angle as we sketch the elephant that was Brian McDonald. What he learned as a child led him to be a lifelong crusader for the vulnerable. And he was just one mortal being. How complex must be the parts of the universe we know even less about? The parts some of us give names to, like God and heaven. I would bet that... Um, Almost everyone here has had a moment of being touched by something large and real that we don't understand. You might call them holy moments, or perhaps you prefer, as many of us do, to call them holy shit moments. They make us uncomfortable, and we seldom speak of them. The first one I remember involves Brian again. A month or two after Alice's death, Brian came to visit in New York City, where I was living. He and I went to breakfast at the now defunct Fifth Avenue Hotel in Greenwich Village, where he and Alice had their first date. Alice had the habit of crossing her fork over her knife. You could always tell where she had sat around the table. And, and sometimes she did that, she would take them and clang them for emphasis to make, as she got excited, to make a point. After we had eaten our breakfast, as uh, Brian and I sat facing each other and talking, we heard the, the sound of silverware clanging, and at Brian's place, the fork was crossed over the knife. I would not have said this then, but now, 45 years later, I'm not afraid to admit I believe that something that was left of Alice 
was making herself known to Brian and me in that restaurant. Or at least that's the part of the elephant that I can touch. For me, the holy lies in making connections like the one Brian and I made that day with a woman we loved and who had loved us. I sometimes feel a connection like that in this church. I look up at the planks in the ceiling, placed with such care and precision in the late 19th century by a new generation of African Americans who believed they were now free to thrive, only to be disappointed by Jim Crow. I feel connected with them and with the following generations who worshipped here throughout an era of lynchings and apartheid, who celebrated weddings and baptisms, and who buried their dead, who found, found, who felt countless joys and sorrows. I'm sure that many of you feel that feeling of connection in this sanctuary. Is that simply a rational process growing out of our knowledge of the church's history? Or is it a bit of the spiritual elephant revealing itself to us? My sense of the holy or my view of the elephant is summed up in this quote from Tagore. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. The same stream of life that runs through my veins night and day runs through the world and dances in rhythmic measures. In Buddhism, we talk about the beginner's mind or the don't know mind. That's a good thing. The wiser we get, the more we see ourselves as beginners. For myself, over about 30 years of studying and practicing Buddhism, I always avoided anything Tibetan. There was too much ritual and too much faith in a very precise sort of reincarnation. I explored just about every school of Buddhism that didn't have the word Tibetan in it. Then my grief process after the death of my son Thomas almost a year and a half ago led me to a particular Buddhist teacher in an approach to, uh, to Buddhism called Zabchen, which is largely Tibetan. In January, I found what feels like my spiritual home there. Maybe my don't know mind will someday take me somewhere else. But one thing I like about Zogchen is that it's non-sectarian. It doesn't claim a monopoly on truth. Beyond the idea that we are all Buddhas who can be awakened to our Buddhahood just as ice can be transformed into water. The thorny issue for so many of us is life after death. I believe I was visited by Alice that day in New York, and I believe even more strongly that my sister Marilyn and my son Thomas connected with me after they died. So I've opened a bit to that Tibetan Tibetan idea of reincarnation. Maybe that elephant has more than one shape. It can take one form for some people, another form for another's. I, I can't explain it, but I, I believe there's something there. And and maybe a better analogy to the elephant is water. We all know that we can never step into the same stream twice. But with our beginner's mind, we can let the water carry us. The poet John O'Donoghue says, I would love to live like a river flows, 
carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Many of us find music as a way of touching what's holy. The singer-songwriter Peter Mayer often does that for me, and I've asked Frank Shipp to close out my sermon today with one of Mayer's songs, God is a River. shifting waters of the river of this life. I was swimming, seeking comfort. I was wrestling waves to find. A boulder I could cling to, a stone to hold me fast. Where I might let the fretful waters of this river round me pass. So I found an anchor, a blessed resting place, trusty rock I called my Savior, for there I would be safe. From the river and its dangers, and I proclaimed my rock divine, and I prayed to it, protect me, and the rock replied. God is a river, not just a stone. God is a wild raging rapids and a slow meandering flow. God is a deep and narrow passage, a peaceful sandy shoal. God is a river swimmer, so let go. Till I clung to my rock tightly with conviction in my arms Never looking at the stream to keep my mind from thoughts of harm But the river kept on coming, kept on tugging at my legs Till at last my fingers faltered and I was swept away so I'm going with the flow now, these relentless twists and bends, acclimating to the motion and a sense of being led. And this river's like my body now, it carries me along through the ever-changing scenes and by the rocks that sing this song. God is a river, not just a stone. God is a wild raging rapids and a slow meandering flow. God is a deep and narrow passage and a peaceful sandy shoal. God is the river swimmer, so let go. 
God is a river swimmer. So let go.